Well, good morning, everyone. It's sure good to see you. Um, it's really been nice to feel like we're finally getting on the other side of this pandemic thing and, and we can get together like this again. Um, I've so missed this and it's been so, so good just to worship with you this morning like this. Uh, the past year has made me appreciate all that it means for us to come together as the family of God and also all that we miss when we can't. So we're so thankful. Uh, Rosemary and I have been a part of Trinity now for going on three and a half years, and we love our church. Uh, we're so thankful to be a part of this body. I've been uh, in ministry uh, in a professional, vocational sort of way for most of my adult life. And, uh, and it's going on 40 years now, close to 40 years. And uh, in those 40 years, I have, I have seen the beauty of the love of the body of Christ expressed to one another in incredible, wonderful, inspiring ways. And in my 40 years, I've also witnessed and experienced the not-so-beautiful part of the body of Christ when believers in Jesus wound each other and hurt each other. And uh, I've been in the middle of that, and I've dished out my share and received my share in that. Um, you know, in spite of our love of God and our our passion for the gospel and and our sincere desire to follow Jesus and along with fellow followers of Christ, you know, we have the amazing capacity, in spite of all of our good intentions, to hurt and be hurt by others in the body of Christ. And I'm convinced that conflict between believers and all the baggage that comes with that conflict the baggage of pain and the hurt is one of the, the major weapons of the enemy to, to dis disillusion us, to discourage us, to deflate us, to derail us from our passionate pursuit of Christ and, and his mission in the world. So I'd like for us to consider a very important parable of Jesus that addresses how we must get past the wounds get past the damage that's inflicted and, and continue on in that race that he has for us. So please turn to Matthew chapter 18 this morning. And I have to apologize that I didn't see the memo that we were supposed to steer clear of Matthew. Uh, so um, I'm a little comforted though that, that Ben is here and that Ben can very easily, very naturally, Revisit this text at another point and correct everything that I mess up here today. So, so hopefully we're good, okay? Uh, anyway, Matthew chapter 18, um, it records Jesus' fourth discourse that uh, Matthew records in his gospel. And this is the one that addresses how God's kingdom people are to relate to one another. Some commentators call this uh, this uh, passage, uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Congregation. And in this passage, you'll particular notice is given to how we're supposed to handle sin in the congregation. 
And in verses 15 through 20, Jesus gives very specific detail on the steps that we are, one is to take when confronting sin uh, uh, that occurs in the congregation. And then right on the heels of that, Peter, in verse 21, uh, brings out a very natural question which addresses a very crucial aspect of dealing with sin that occurs in our relationships. And it surrounds the very important act of forgiveness. Specifically, what's the limit on forgiveness? Where do I draw the line? Somebody's coming at me and coming at me and hurting me and over and over again. When is it that we reach the enough is enough point? When is it that I can say, I don't have to extend this forgiveness anymore? So let's read verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, Peter thought he was being magnanimous by stating seven times. Uh, the rabbis in that day were saying three times. So he thought he would impress Jesus by doubling that number and adding one, you know, seven. That's a nice biblical number, whole seven times. So how does Jesus respond? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Other translations put it 70 times seven. But the point of Jesus' answer is not so much in, in establishing a number, whether it's 77 or 490. Jesus is using hyperbole here, and he's going to continue using hyperbole in the parable that he tells to underscore the crucial importance that forgiveness is always to be our response. Jesus' answer in the parable he tells to drive home his answer uncovers an assumption that Peter was making about the nature of forgiveness. And that assumption, it was a faulty assumption. That assumption was, and we tend to all be here, that assumption was that forgiveness is for the benefit of the offender. And Jesus is going to contradict that assumption very powerfully in the parable that he's going to tell. He's going to underscore that forgiveness is for the benefit of the offended primarily. Jesus is going to powerfully underscore that we can't afford not to forgive. That it's vitally necessary for us to forgive so in the parable, starting in verse 23, and it goes through 34, we, we see the parable of the forgiving king and the unforgiving servant. Jesus' parables can be heartwarming, mind-teasing, and soul-shocking to drive us to the truth that he's wanting us to see. And in this parable, it's laid out in three scenes. Jesus is going to use hyperbole and contrast to astonish us in scene one, to make us cringe in scene two, and then to shock us into the truth in scene three, that of why it is so vital we cultivate and maintain a heart that extends forgiveness, why we can't afford 
not to forgive. So in scene one, let's read verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, this particular servant owed the king an astronomical sum, 10,000 talents. A talent was a measurement of weight of precious metals. It usually weighed between 60 and 90 pounds. 10,000 talents represented about 204 metric tons. That'd be a lot of stuff to have to manage, right? One talent represented 6,000 denarii, and one denarius was a day's wage for the typical worker in that time. So one talent represented over 20 years' wages. One talent. This servant owed 10,000 talents, the equivalent of 60 million denarii, which would take the typical worker 164,000 years to repay. So Jesus used the highest uh, unit of currency, the talent, and the highest number in the Greek language, 10,000, to underscore the unimaginable size of the debt of the servant. It would be like for us to say he owed trillions of dollars kind of like, I guess, our national debt today. <laughs> the settling of accounts before the king confronted the servant with the enormity of his debt. Jesus used the familiar practice of the ancient world of selling the debtor and his family into slavery to portray the desperate situation facing the servant. The servant falls on his knees, begging the king for more time desperately claiming that with more time he could repay the debt. And all the hearers are saying, dude, get a grip, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're completely disconnected from the reality of the enormity of the debt that you have. The debt is impossibly high. It can never be repaid. The sentence of retribution looms. And then astonishingly, we hear the king's reaction, verse 27, and out of pity for him, other translations read, out of compassion for him, the master of that servant, here's the key terms, released him and forgave him the debt. The NIV puts it, he canceled the debt and let him go. Astonishing grace and forgiveness for a debt too great to ever be repaid. Imagine the impact on this man. The man pleaded for more time. Instead, his entire debt was canceled out. It was erased, wiped clean. The king, out of compassion, canceled the debt and released him. 
what would be the impact on this man that had received this incredible forgiveness for a debt that was impossible to repay? What would be the impact on him? And then Jesus makes us cringe as we move to scene two. Look at verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him, the Greek literally is, threw him into prison until he should pay his debt. Now, note the power of the comparison and contrast in this scene with the first scene. Both servants had a debt. Both servants, when confronted about their debt, pleaded for patience. In fact, Jesus wants us to feel the irony so much, he uses almost the exact same terms of the second servant in verse 29 that the first servant had used before the king with his enormous debt. Have patience with me and I will pay you. One would think in witnessing this response, the first servant would have seen himself on his knees and heard himself as he pleaded before that king with the enormous debt for which he had just been forgiven. But that is not the case, as the contrast drawn in the scene will drive home. Unlike the first servant's debt, 60 million denarii, this servant owed 100 denarii. One denarius, again, equals a day's wage. So we're talking about three and a half months' wages, a not insignificant sum. But when viewed in comparison to the first servant's debt, it was one six hundred thousandth of the debt that he had just been forgiven. Mindful of the huge debt and amazing forgiveness we just heard that was expressed toward this first servant, we cringe as we witness the petty, ugly picture portrayed in the attitude and posture of this first servant finding his fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii and grabbing him by the throat and saying, pay what you owe. We cringe having just witnessed the king out of compassion for this one who owed so much displaying amazing grace and forgiving all of this huge debt. And now, with a second servant falling to his knees and pleading in almost identical fashion as the first servant had done, we hear this first servant's response in verse 30. He refused. He refused. And he went and he put, he threw this fellow servant in prison to pay his debt. Against the backdrop of the beautiful scene of astonishing grace, forgiving incalculable, unpayable debt, this, sin causes, this scene causes us to wince with shame and embarrassment. 
at the ugly, petty heartlessness of this one who had been forgiven so much. But we should note the scene is cringeworthy only because we're aware of the first scene. If the story were told without the backdrop of the first scene, our response would likely be far, far different. But because of that first scene, we immediately feel the, the incongruence with the astonishing grace that we witnessed in the first scene. The action of this first servant, finding his fellow servant and grabbing him by the throat, saying, pay what you owe, doesn't align with the mercy that we had witnessed in the first scene. His refusal to forgive, his withholding of mercy, contradicts the mercy he had just received. The math of mercy received is not adding up. And that brings us to the third scene, verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So there's a second summoning to give accounts. The first summoning, we saw what the reaction was. In the second summoning, the time, this time the response of the master king is very different. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt. It unmistakably makes a connection to the difference God's mercy received should make in the behavior of those who receive it. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Verse 33. This is the key statement in the parable that drives home the point that we cannot miss. The Greek here in this sentence literally reads, Is it not necessary that you had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Mercy received is to be mercy extended True reception of the mercy, the grace, the forgiveness of God is a transforming experience. And then Jesus jolts us with a shocking picture of the outcome on this servant's refusal to forgive in verse 34. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. The Greek is literally torturers until he should pay all his debt. Jesus used the strong imagery of practices in this time to shock the hearers into the truth of the serious consequences that lie in store when we refuse to forgive. It's almost as if Jesus is grabbing us by the shoulders and shaking us with shock treatment so that we will get it, so that we will see how serious it is to withhold forgiveness. In the first scene, we marvel and are astonished at the immensity of the generosity 
and grace displayed in the forgiveness of an un, impossibly high debt. And now in this last scene, we recoil in shock at the immensity of the severity of this same king's reaction to the servant who was forgiven so much and who refused to extend that same forgiveness to someone else. Peter's likely sorry he ever brought up the question. And while Peter and his companions are grappling with this shocking picture, Jesus delivers his warning. Verse 35. This one I wish, it's, it's hard. This is a hard statement. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's not very comfortable. And this is such a heavy, heavy issue. And I know in a, in a room this size is represented a whole sea of pain and hurt here. And the last thing I want to do is being sensitive to that hurt. I know there are some people who have been so hurt here. And maybe you've been hurt over and over for a long period of time. And the hurt is, we probably, we, we probably, some of us couldn't even handle hearing about the hurt that you've been through. And perhaps you could get up here and share your story with us, and we would be so mad at that person who has caused you so, so much pain. And we would feel that you are so justified to be holding on to the hurt uh, and to be so outraged at the way you've been treated at this person. But we got to hear, you and I, we got to hear what Jesus is saying to us today. He's saying, you got to let it go. You got to forgive. It's absolutely vital that you and I forgive. If you don't forgive, if I don't forgive, God's coming after us. You can hear the protest. How can this be, Jesus? I'm the one who was wronged. I'm the one with the hurt. I'm the one whose life has been devastated, cheated, mistreated, maligned. I'm the harm party. I'm the victim here. I'm the one who has endured a world of hurt and mistreatment. And Jesus, you're telling me that if I refuse to forgive this person who has inflicted such pain in my life, that God's coming after me? It's not easy to hear. Jesus, in telling this parable, gives two powerful reasons why it's so vital for you and I to forgive. Why we cannot afford not to forgive, no matter what. And the first one is this. Because your heavenly Father, who saw you get hurt and who permitted it to happen, think about that. The one who... 
The scripture says, stores our tears in his bottle. The one whose scripture says, as a father has compassion on his children. The one who Romans 8 says, is for us, not against us. Your heavenly father who loves you and me so much knows that when you and I make the decision to refuse to forgive, it's as if we're pushing the self-destruct button on our life. He loves us too much to let us do that. That's why he's warning us the way he is. To hold on to anger, to hold on to bitterness, to hold on to the hurt, to refuse to let it go, to refuse to forgive is to flip the self-destruct lever and start the self-destruct sequence in our life. It's just a matter of time. I know we have to be careful here. Parables can, can really be tricky. And we must be extremely cautious not to go farther in our interpretation beyond the parable's intent and not press our interpretation on every detail of, of the story Jesus is painting. But the picture of imprisonment and subjection to the torturers in verse 34 is fitting imagery of the chains of bondage and torment that begin to get wrapped around a person's heart and mind when anger and bitterness are held onto, nursed and cultivated. As we rightly feel justified to be outraged at the wrong, the debt that has been incurred and is owed us, we are the ones who need to be restored. They are the ones who deserve to be punished. And we nurse that pain. We stoke that righteous, justified outrage we feel and being treated the way we've been treated. And the timer on the self-destruct sequence starts ticking. I want you to, let's, let's meditate on, on a couple of verses in Ephesians. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. The ESV translates the Greek, the Greek uh, a lot more literally. It says, be angry, be angry, and yet do not sin. We can be justifiably angry. It is natural. It is correct to have a righteous indignation, a be rightfully angry at wrongs that we see that are committed. When we witness injustices, when we witness wrong treatment, it is a right reaction. God himself gets angry, doesn't he? At the wrongs that we see around us. Anger can be an appropriate response. But notice what Paul says. There is a time limit on it. We can't hold on to that anger. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. I don't think it's a literal 24 or 12 hour period that Paul is saying. I think the point he is making is take care of it quick. Don't let it start stewing and marinating. We have to process the anger and let go of it in an expeditious way. 
But if you and I decide we're going to hold on to that anger, to hold on to that grudge, to nurse that resentment, Paul says that is an act that gives the devil a foothold in our life. When we choose to hold on to a grudge, as justified as we feel to be angry at that person, Paul says it's like throwing open the front door of our life and saying, and welcoming the enemy of our soul to come right on in. The anger, that resentment, as justified as we feel, will eventually bring us down. It will bring us down. And sadly, oftentimes, those around us as well. Righteous anger that exceeds its shelf life in our heart turns to bitterness. One psychologist describes bitterness as fermented unforgiveness. That righteous anger we feel for being wrong, if held too long, turns toxic in our heart. I saw this quote. Bitterness is the only poison we drink hoping the other person drops dead. Psychologists regard bitterness as one of the most destructive and toxic of human emotions. When we continue to nurse that righteous anger we feel, ruminating over the wrongs done to us, rehearsing over and over in our minds and with friends or loved ones how they have wronged us and insisting in our minds how they don't deserve to be let off the hook, they must be made to pay, to restore, to set right, to pay back the debt they have incurred, we refuse to let it go. We continue to righteously obsess about our injuries, our outrage. We eventually become victims, not so much from others, but of ourselves. The picture painted by Jesus of being thrown into prison with torturers, though I have no doubt more is intended here than simply an analogy of temporal, emotional, mental, and relational consequences. I think there's more there. It's scary. It certainly is a fitting picture of the chains and bondage in the heart and mind. We most certainly will suffer if we refuse to let go of the anger and the hurt. In my 40 years of ministry um, as, a min as a missionary, as a pastor, and now serving in human resources in a mission organization, I have witnessed um, this destructive sequence more often than I care to think. Among people who love Jesus, people committed to him. Forgiveness, it's the way to freedom. Forgiveness is God's gracious provision to keep us out of that destructive prison. And Jesus is warning us because he loves us. We can't afford not to forgive. To refuse to forgive is to start the self-destruct sequence in our life. And eventually, if we don't take action, it will bring us down. It will devastate us and many times those around us. That was the hard reason. This is the better reason. The second one. The second reason why we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, who've experienced God's amazing forgiveness, why it's so vital that we must forgive, it's because God's mercy and forgiveness genuinely received is mercy and forgiveness that is extended. 
God in his amazing and astonishing grace has forgiven us a debt of sin that is immeasurably higher than we could ever repay. No wrong that has ever been committed toward you and me could ever come close to the debt of sin that we are guilty of, the hurt that we have directed toward the king of the universe, the judge of all the universe. No hurt can ever come close to what we're guilty of before God. And he forgave us. As Jesus relates relates this parable, he knows that just in a short amount of time, he's going to ascend that hill of Calvary to pay the incalculable debt that you and I owe before this holy and righteous God. Jesus, the Son of God, paid the price in full. His cross has canceled the debt that stood against us. He has taken it away. He's nailed it to the cross. We sang about it today. Colossians 2.14 says it. Hallelujah. We sang. The forgiveness of God extended and received by sinners like you and me becomes the basis and means of our extending that same forgiveness to those around us. And in a very real way, the cross of Jesus forever removed our right to not forgive. When we genuinely receive through humble repentance and faith in Jesus, this amazing grace of God for the forgiveness of our sins, we are plunged into an infinite reservoir of grace and forgiveness that is totally sufficient for all of our sins, past, present, and future. But that reservoir of grace is not only for us. God intends for us by faith to tap into that reservoir and become channels of that same grace that we so desperately depend on and to channel it to those around us, to the fellow sinners around us who so desperately need it too. And in doing so, when we do that, we're kept out of the prison. We break the chains. Was it not necessary that you had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? The forgiveness, the grace of God received is forgiveness that transforms. Mercy genuinely received is mercy that is extended. This is not the first time that Jesus made this point in Matthew's gospel. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus, the model prayer that Jesus prayed for us. Matthew 6 verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then Jesus makes the connection even more explicit in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's a hard one. You'd like to just, I I don't like it. Jesus knows how to shake our cages, doesn't he? Klein Snodgrass in his uh, book, uh, Stories with Intent. It's a great, great uh, commentary on the parables. 
he, he puts it this way. Mercy is not effectively received unless it is shown. For God's mercy transforms. If God's mercy does not take root in the heart, it is not experienced. Forgiveness not shown is forgiveness not known. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is truly an impossibly high standard for us to live up to. And honestly, we cannot carry this out unless by faith we tap into that grace, that enabling grace that God has provided for us. This is really, this command is a call. It's a command to make the decision. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not an emotion. It's a decision. It's a decision to, by faith, let go of the resentment that we've been holding by faith, tapping into that reservoir of grace and forgiveness that's so sufficient for us, and to extend that same grace that we receive toward another person. God's forgiveness is underneath our forgiveness, creates it and supports it, John Piper says. Forgiveness is so crucial because it goes right to the heart of God's relationship with us. Our choice to forgive in the face of deep hurt is an act of faith and a marvelous expression of God's saving, transforming power at work in and through our lives. What an amazing, powerful demonstration that God is at work in our life when we extend that forgiveness in the face of deep, deep hurt. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation, but it's absolutely vital if reconciliation is ever to happen. It takes both parties, right, to come together for reconciliation. But, but we have the responsibility, regardless of the response of the offender, to guard our heart, to preserve our heart by getting into a posture, into a readiness with a heart that forgives, that lets it go. We have a choice to make when we are hurt. Even when we're really hurt, we can choose to hold on to the grudge, to hold on to the resentment, to nurse the hurt, to say they don't deserve our forgiveness. Or we can realize that forgiveness is the gift, is the gracious provision of God for us, for our well-being. And we can make the choice, as hard as it is, we make the choice by faith to release the debt, to cancel it out, to name that, that debt that was incurred, that hurt that was incurred, and to write across it and across our mind and across our heart, canceled by the grace of God, canceled. I'm not going to be held captive by that anymore. I'm not going to bring it up in my mind. I'm not going to bring it up with others. I'm releasing that person of that debt. And in doing so, and it could take some time, right? 
I think there was a point in Jesus 77 times. I think that we have to come back to that point again and again and again to say, hey, I, I canceled the debt, Lord. I canceled it. I'm putting it behind me. I'm trusting you, Jesus, to channel your grace that you give to me to that other person because I want to stay free. I want to stay out of the prison. And as we do so, as we do so, we show the transforming power of grace, the saving grace of God in our lives and before a watching world. So as we come to our communion time, as we've been reminded of the enormous debt that you and I owe, the debt of our sin that we owe before this holy and righteous God, let us in repentance and humble thanksgiving worship the one who ascended that hill of Calvary and took our sin upon himself, took our place, and he paid the debt in full. As we take the bread, let us remember Jesus' broken body, broken for the forgiveness of my sins and for your sins. And as we partake of the cup, let us think on the fact that in spite of the awful affront of our rebellion and the un incalculable hurt that we heaped on our Father in our turning away from him, that Jesus poured out his lifeblood for you and me so that we may find mercy and forgiveness instead of the judgment we deserve. Father, thank you for your indescribable gift, the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus' death for us. Thank you for the superabundant grace lavished on us through Jesus. And Father, help us now to be channels of that amazing grace as we extend that forgiveness to fellow sinners who have hurt us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.